0: i sure.
1: Good morning, church. I'd like to invite you to stand with us as we prepare our hearts and our minds for worshiping. The psalmist says in Psalm 100, Make a joyful noise to the Lord. All the earth serve the Lord with gladness. I love that. Come into his presence with singing. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us and we are his. We are his people and the sheep of his pastor. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. Give thanks to him, bless his name, for the Lord is good. His steadfast love endures forever and his faithfulness to all generations. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for these truths contained in your word. And I pray, Lord, that as we gather, as we sing praises, as we lift up our hands in prayer, as we hear scripture, spoken to us, God, would you move in and through our hearts? Would you cause us to worship? Would you reveal these truths to our souls so that we would turn more and more away from ourselves and closer to you? God, we pray simply that you would do a great work in our hearts in this place today for your glory. May your name, the name above all names, be lifted up and be glorified. In Christ's name, Amen. Let's sing. Let's celebrate. Christ is the cornerstone of our faith. All we know is Christ crucified. He is worthy. We will celebrate together these truths.
0: Yes.
2: trusting and believing for God to do something great and powerful Um, So as we go through our weekly prayer time here as a church We we go through the Sermon on the Mount kind of as a teaching point That's what Jesus meant it as to teach us how to pray So we kind of go through a little section each each week So I want to kind of start at the beginning of that I want to show you Matthew chapter 6 verse 9 And Jesus begins praying by saying, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus begins teaching you how to pray by first telling you, focus on who God is and ask for God to be glorified in what he desires to do on earth. Does that make sense? Here's why that's so important. Knowing who we're praying to and the power and authority that he possesses to do whatever he deems to do here on this earth is the only hope you have when you're praying for something that you in your flesh cannot see and an into. Does that make sense? I mean, have you ever been in a spot where you were praying because you knew you were supposed to pray, but you did not think that sucker was going to happen? In those moments, more than any time, we desperately need to settle our hearts on who God is. We talk about praying by faith. Let's chat for just a second, and this may seem obvious, but we need to kind of tweak our thinking a little bit. What do we, what do we have faith in? Your faith is not in the prayer being answered. Your faith is not in the thing changing. Your faith is in God. And, and, and that is a big distinction. My faith is in Him. Regardless of what I see happening on earth, my faith is in Him. You especially need to settle your heart on who God is as you're praying for something that seems difficult or even impossible on earth. And I'll I'll give you a biblical example of this. In Genesis chapter 49, Jacob is dying. And as he's dying, he is praying blessings over his sons. And so as you read Genesis 49, he's praying for this son and this son and this may be this and this son may be that. And he's praying all this thing. And as he's praying, something really interesting happens in verse 18. He breaks from all of that, and in Genesis 49, 18, he says, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. In the midst of praying these great and amazing things over his sons, he had to stop and ask for God to do it, because apart from God doing it, none of that was going to ever happen. Right? His focus was on God and asking God to do this work because he knew left to themselves, his sons were going to fall flat on their face. God needed to do this. So for you, the reason that you're going to be able to continue to pray in faith in situations that you can't in your physical mind's eye see changing. is because your hope and faith is in God and not in that situation. So I want to encourage you this morning. Let's take a little time and let's do that. I'm ask you to bow your heads. And for you here this morning, is there a particular situation circumstance that you're praying for? <clears throat> but let's just be honest, uh, in the natural, you're not seeing anything shift here, right? You're not seeing anything change. In fact, you ever been in this spot? It feels like the more you pray, the worse it gets. What's up with that? And so there's going to be a real temptation to just stop or to get discouraged or to get defeated or God can't do this. Or or I know that God wants to, but I don't know if he will. And you start getting all trying to figure out the mind of God like that's something we can even do. I want to encourage you, take just a minute this morning and whatever that specific thing is that you might be praying for that feels really, really far off. I want you to take just a moment today, and don't even pray for that, but take just a moment this morning and set your heart back on God. Our Father who is in heaven, holy and perfect and pure and other, and His His absolute perfect will on this earth will be accomplished. You and whoever you're praying for are not big enough or strong enough to change that from happening. So take a moment this morning and set your heart on Him. Father, we, this morning, we echo the prayer of one of our great fathers in the faith, Jacob. And we all, with unified voice, just say, I wait for your salvation, O Lord. I trust you to do this work. I trust you to be glorified. I trust you to do what is in perfect alignment with your will. So as all over this room, there are countless prayer requests. I know people that have been lifting up, some for years. Feeling as if there's not making any ground there. I pray God this morning, you set their hearts fresh on you. Their hope will be in you. Their faith is in you. Their love and affection is set on you. Not in that thing being accomplished, but just on you. We're trusting in you and we're waiting on your salvation to come to fruition right here on earth. Settle in our hearts, God, a faith that's just in you. We praise you, our great dad in heaven, holy and pure and other and righteous. Your kingdom is going to become, your will is going to be done on earth just as it is in heaven. And for that, we can say yes and amen. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We pray this. In your name, amen. All right. Hey, if you've got a Bible, let's find James together, all right? The book of James. If you're new to church, uh, you don't have a Bible, you can grab one in the back of the pew in front of you. James is going to be towards the end of your Bible. You can open up at the end. You, you might find maps. Keep going to the left. You'll find Revelation. Keep going. You'll find a little book called Jude. Keep going. You'll eventually, a few more pages to the left, you're going to come to a book called James. James, we're going to be uh, predominantly in chapter 2 of James today. So we're going through the book of James. And our big idea as we're going through our series in James is what? A faith that saves you will also change you. A faith that saves you will also inevitably change you. So changing the way you live does not make you a Christian, right? We need to make sure we understand that. Changing the way you live does not make you a Christian, Just because you cut that bad thing out of your life, just because you start attending church, just because you buy a Bible and start reading it, doesn't in and of itself make you a Christian. However, when you do become a Christian by faith in Christ alone, inevitably your life is going to be changed, right? A faith that saves you will also change you. As a follower of Christ, you are going to bear fruit. You're going to grow. You're going to mature. You're going to grow up in holiness. You're going to repent of sin. You're going to be closer in the Lord today than you were previously. You are going to grow. You're going to mature. And that's what the book of James is all about. If salvation in Christ inevitably is going to change you, what James is trying to get at is, okay... Then what does that practically look like, right? We all like to know what practically are we looking at here. This is what James is getting at. A faith that saves you is going to change you. And here's some ideas of what that practically looks like, right? You can look at your life and go, okay, I I, I see that's happening in me. Or I need to grow in that. Or, okay, that's, that's the goal. That's what I need to go after. Here's how I go there. A faith that saves you will also change you. And James lays out here's kind of practically what that looks like. So as we've gone through James, we've seen how Christians practically uh, engage with trials. We've seen how Christians practically endure temptation. We've seen how Christians practically use God's word to grow in faith. Today what we're going to see is how Christians practically um, see the world around them and engage with the world around them. All right? So here's going to be the big idea for today. All right. Try to give it to you in one sentence so you kind of know what we're going at, and then you can grade me on the end if I did a good job. All right. So here's our big idea for today. Since faith in Christ changed the way God looks at me, it must also change the way I look at others. Since my faith in Christ changed the way God looks at me, it has to now. Change the way I look at everyone else around me. 2 right? Corinthians 5, 16, 16 and 17 say that we used to look at people according to the flesh. But now that we've been made new creations in Christ, we no longer do that. Right? So. There used to be a time in my life, in your life, where you would look at people, judge them, and put them up in categories. These are good people. These are bad people. This is who I want to be around. That's who I don't want to be around. These are people that can help me. These are people who can't help me. These are people who can teach me something. These are people who can't teach me anything. Right? We used to live like that. But now that we've been made new by Jesus, God looks at me differently. Right? I used to be an enemy of God Now I'm a friend of God. I used to be a stranger to God. Now I'm a son of God. I used to hate God. Now I love God. Because of faith in Christ, God views me differently. And as a result of that, a practical implication of the gospel is I have to now look at everybody else different as well. i got to look at them the way God looks at them. I have to view them the way God views them. I have to consider them the way God considers them. Love them the way that God loves them. God has changed you, and God now looks at you differently than he used to. And as a result of that, you have to now view the world and everyone else in it differently as well. So let's jump in to that together, all right? Let's actually back up a hair, and we're going to get the last two verses from last week, James 1, 26 and 27. So if you've got a Bible, let's look at those real quick. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart... This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Right? So as we saw last week, part of the practical working out of the gospel, one of the evidences that you are actually a Christian is that you're going to love and have compassion on the poor and the needy. Specifically here, it talks about orphans and widows, two categories of people who would have been pretty much helpless and hopeless in a first century context. They had no one take care of them, no one to provide for them. They were as good as dead. It says if you're really a Christian, you're going you're to love those people. And so in chapter 2, he kind of takes that idea and expands it out a little bit. All right. So chapter 2, verse 1, let's see this. My brothers, show no partiality... As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Alright, so if you've got a Bible, circle the word partiality. That's going to be our big theme for today. Alright? It says here that as a Christian, you cannot show what they're calling here is the sin of partiality. The word partiality is a really interesting word. It's kind of a combination of words. It means to accept Or reject someone according to the face. So quite literally, you look at someone, you make uh, an assumption about them, a judgment about them, either a good one, you're going to take them in, or a bad one, you kick them out, right? So that's that partiality, right? I like this person, I bring them in, I don't like that person, I keep them at arm's length, right? So he's saying, this isn't okay. In fact, he says there in verse 1, My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So what he's saying is this. To, to hold means to take possession of right So what he's saying is this: you have two choices. all right imagine you got one hand and you have two items in front of you. you can't hold them both at the same time. you're going to have to let go of one to grab another. you can't hold them both. And what he's saying here is this: as a Christian, you cannot Hold your partialities, hold your prejudices, hold your judgments, hold your determinations of who you deem as good and who you deem as bad. You cannot hold that and hold Jesus at the same time. you got to let one go. You get to choose. You can be the one to determine the good guys and the bad guys. You can be the one to determine who wears the white hat and who wears the black hat. You can choose that, but in return, you got to let go of Jesus. Or, you choose to let all that go, you grab a hold of Christ, and you let him worry about that. So, here's why this is a big deal. Here's why this matters. James only has five chapters. One, two, three, four, five. But he spends half of one whole chapter, half of one whole chapter, just focused on partiality within the church. That should, we don't want to just see what God says. We want to see how He says it. We want to kind of look at what He focuses on, what He puts a lot of time on. There are just five chapters in this little book, and He spends half of one of them just making sure we understand, no, this is actually a big deal. This is actually significant. And here's why. Because left to ourselves... Left to our own hearts, leanings and pullings, we will inevitably do this. Here in this passage we're going to see it's talking about rich and poor, and, and for sure we'll, we'll get into that. Uh, but there's way more going on here than just that, and this happens in way more ways than this. We draw certain people in and, re- and push other people out for all kinds of reasons. Right? Money, social status, race, gender, nationality, political affiliation. You know why today's message matters so much? Because we are extremely, extremely divided as a people. The point of this whole chapter, this whole section here is going to be, you're supposed to be different in here than they are out there. Right? That's the point. Right? This is the whole point of James, right? We have a faith that looks differently than they live. We look different. And this happens so sneaky, so easily. Right? We draw people in because they look like us, they think like us, they encourage us, they make us feel good about ourselves, they fit into the mold of what we deem to be a good person They might improve our social status. Or they do life similar to how you do life, so it makes you feel good about your life choices, so you keep them around. You guys are in the military? We're in the military. You guys homeschool? We homeschool. You guys hold that particular theological position? So do we. And we draw these people in And what happens is this. Listen, is it, is it wrong to have people in your life who look like you and similar to you? Of course not. But here's the problem. When we sort of subconsciously do this, and we haven't checked our heart on it at all, we don't stop to set this before the Lord at all, we don't take a Sunday to think about this and look at the Scriptures and really ask God to search our hearts. We never do that. We just kind of subconsciously do this over and over and over. Over time, what's going to happen is this. You're going to look up, and every single person in your relational orbit looks just like you. And that's going to have two big problems. Number one, your life is going to look nothing like heaven's going to look. Which is a problem. If you don't like being around people who don't look like you, talk like you, or think like you, heaven's going to stink. The whole point of earth is to be a practice run for heaven. And if your life looks nothing like heaven, what's the point? And the second big issue is going to be this. If everyone in your life thinks and looks and acts just like you, There's a real tendency toward confirmation bias. Well, of course Christians all do this. Look around. We all do it. Of course Christians all raise their kids like this. Look around. We all do it. Of course good Christians just go to this kind of church. Look around. We all do it. It creates this confirmation bias to where nothing in your heart ever gets challenged or checked. And so it's extremely important for us to take a day like today, dive into the Scriptures, and say, God, search my heart. Is there anything here that I need to repent, confess, and change? All right, so let's look at what specifically is going on in this situation here in James. So pick it up in verse 2. Says, for if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit at my feet, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So it says two kinds of people come in, right? One guy comes in with a gold ring and fine clothing. Another guy comes in wearing shabby clothing. So you look at the guy wearing the fine clothing, and you give him a good place to sit, a place of honor, probably up front. Then after that, a guy comes in wearing kind of shabby clothes, and and he's told to either stand in the back or sit down at my feet like a servant. And what he says in verse 4 is, "...in doing this, have you not made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil?" that word distinction literally means to dissect anybody remember high school biology class right you got that frog or whatever right you pin that sucker down and there were two groups of people people who were way too excited about that day and the people who thought i was going to throw up right there were two very distinct groups of people so what is it right take that little scalpel you Right, And the teacher's like, okay, find the liver. And I know people are like, would you shut up right now? I don't like this. But what do you do, right? The whole point of dissecting is you are, literally, you are taking a body apart. And you're placing a piece over here. And you're placing a piece over here. And that is the exact terminology God uses for you and I when we do this in here. We are the body of Christ. You tracking with this? And when you determine how to slice up the body and this is a good one, and that's not a good one, and this is who I want to spend time with, and that's a person I don't want to spend time with, and I like investing in these people, but I don't like investing in those people, and I want this person in my journey group, but I don't want that kind of person in my journey group, and this person's easy to connect with, and that person sucks up way too much relational energy. When you do that, you are dissecting The body of Christ. And then not only that, the end of verse 4, it says that you become judges with evil thoughts. The word evil thought literally means bad opinion. So here's what that means. When you do that, you become a judge. But the problem is, you're a really lousy judge. You're not good at it. You make bad decisions. You wrongly deem this person good and that person bad. You wrongly determine, I want to be with this person, but I don't want to be with that person. This person can give something to me. That person can't. I can learn something from them. I can't learn anything from them. I like spending time with this person. I would rather get hit in the head with something hard than spend time with that one. And we become evil Unwise judges slicing up the body of Christ, determining who we like and who we don't like. So, pick it up in verse 5. We see why that was a really bad idea for them. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? Verse 6, But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. So what he's doing in here, he's not trying to set up here either poor people good, rich people bad, right? God's not doing the same thing that, that these people are doing, just in the flip. He's not saying that, he's not some poverty theology, right? Like poor people really love God and rich people don't. He's not saying that either. But what he's saying is this. Look, you're, you're making really foolish decisions. God loves the poor. For the record, that rich guy that you're giving honor to, he's going to drag you into court next week and take every dime from you that he can. He hears nothing about you. You're not getting anything from him. He's just trying to help you understand you are not in the position of judge. And when you try to be, you typically do a bad job at it. Brothers and sisters, what we have to see in this, the real rebuke that James has on this church is that they're acting inside the church just like the world out there. The implication here with this rich man and poor man are that they're non-Christians who have come in, right? Someone is, this, this idea in the New Testament whenever someone comes in, the implication is that they're an outsider, right? They don't. Their church experience wasn't like our church experience, right? It wasn't like, you know, today I think I'm going to go to First Baptist Jerusalem. Tomorrow, I didn't like their worship, so tomorrow I'm going to go to Second Baptist, right? That's not the way it works, right? You had... A place where all the Christians gather. And if someone from outside came in, the implication was they're not a Christian, but they came in to learn about the Christian faith. Does that make sense? So this is a rich person and a poor person who aren't Christians, and they've come into this church to learn what Christianity is about. And what they learned was God loves certain people and not others. God really cares about these people, but not so much about that guy. What they're doing is acting just like the world. And so what we have to do is take an honest look and examination of our own hearts. Is that what we do? Let's just be honest. Is this, is this in me? So what I want to do for the rest of the time and picking up in verse 8 is, so James kind of laid out, here's what happens. And then in the second half of this, he kind of lays out, now here's what you need to do about it. So that's where I want to kind of let the next little bit rest for us. What do we do? this is a reality left to ourselves our own human hearts we will inevitably bend towards people who we like and bend away towards people we don't bend towards people who are easy for us to hang out with and love bend away from people who are not we inevitably do this every one of us so the question is well well, what now as followers of christ who have, by faith in Christ, God now views me differently, and I now should view others differently. What does that look like? How do I get there? What do I do? So, first is this. Verse 8. We must line ourselves up with God's heart. We've got to line ourselves up with God's heart. Look at verse 8. It says, if you really fulfill the royal law, according to the Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing Well, so James is quoting really kind of two places in the Scriptures. Matthew 22, verse 39, that's where Jesus is speaking. But Jesus in Matthew 22 is actually quoting from Leviticus 19, 18. So if you go to Matthew 22, if you're familiar with the Gospels, that's where Jesus is speaking. And he gives what's called the two great commandments, right? The first great commandment is, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And he says, and the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. That's that second great commandment. That's what James is quoting here. And James calls this the royal law, or literally the law that belongs to the king. And then he says at the end there, if you obey this law, you're doing well. So what he means is this. Look, God, the sovereign king of the universe, has set up his perfect law. And you must obey. Obey it. And what is it? That you would love your neighbor as yourself. Showing favoritism and partiality to certain people over others is flat out just breaking God's law. And what I want you to see from this is when we do that, when we favor this group over this group, this person over that person because of some external thing, when we do that, We're ultimately doing it because we're not lined up with God's heart. Because God doesn't think that way. Remember, the first great commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then as you do that, you will love your neighbor as yourself. So here's how this thing works. The reason that you are able to love your neighbor is because you love God. And God, Romans 5 says, has poured his love through the Holy Spirit into your heart. So here's what this means. If you struggle to love your neighbor... That is because on some level you are struggling to love God. And this is an extremely important point that we have to understand. Your issue isn't with them, it's with Him. If your heart was lined up with God's heart, loving that person or that group of people would come significantly easier for you. It's a God issue, not a them issue. It's vertical, not horizontal. You must line yourself up with God's heart. Then you're going to be able to love that person the way that God has called you to love that person. This is not about, well, they don't think like I think or live like I live or do what I do. Or th- It's about God's heart. And if you really have God's heart, you really understand God's heart, then you're going to love them. A love for God is what stokes a deep love for other people. And if you struggle to love other people, that is because your love for God has grown cold. And I know we don't like to think like that. No, 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 I love God. Okay, well then it will manifest out in you loving them. And if it doesn't, the issue isn't them. The issue is you and God. So step one is this. Again, taking an honest uh, assessment of our hearts. Is your heart lined up with God's heart? Is your heart beating for love for God? And as a result, a love for other people. If you love God and God's love is flowing into you, you will love what he loves and God loves people. God especially loves those who everyone else kicks to the curb. If that's not who your heart beats for, then you may want to spend a little bit of time in prayer because you have missed God's heart. This is the heart of God. We must, if this is going to be a thing for us, if this is something that we're going to change in us, if this is something we're going to walk out in faithfulness. Step one is this: Don't worry about that person or that group of people or what. Don't focus on that. It's you and God, right? It's you and God. Uh, second is this, um, we must recognize how serious the sin of partiality really is, right? So sometimes um, we refuse to see partiality as sin at all, right? right? We'll say things like, well, I just connect better with these people, right? or birds of a feather flock together, right? I mean, come on, it's in second hesitations, that's in the Bible. But the truth is, look at verse 9, you ready for this? Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Like, it just could not be any more plain. So then we also, we, 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 we play goofy games. You know how you, I know you play goofy games? Because I play goofy games. Like, okay, 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 okay It's sin. But I mean, it's not a big sin, right? It's not like I killed anybody. Oh no! Verse ten. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, "Do not commit murder," oh, do not commit adultery, also said, "Do not murder." For if you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So think about the law like a chain. So imagine this. Imagine you have fallen off a cliff, and you reach up at the last minute, and there's a chain dangling off. And you grab a chain, and, and you are hanging on to that chain. If you let go of that chain, if that chain breaks, you're going to fall to your death, right? So that holding on to that chain is the only thing keeping you alive. Now, do you think, you know what? As long as link number nine holds strong, I'm good. If link three breaks, I'll be all right. You don't think that, right? Because if one of the links in the chain breaks, the chain breaks and you plummet to your death. This is the law of God for you. You are dangling over a cliff that falls into hell. The only thing keeping you up is the chain of the law of God. And you grab onto that chain and you try to be good and you try to obey the rules and you try to do what's right. But if any one of those links break, if you break any one of those laws, by definition, the chain breaks and you plummet into hell. This completely blows apart this ridiculous idea of, well, No, I'm not perfect, but I don't kill anybody, so surely God's not going to send me to hell. The law of God is a chain. And it doesn't matter that the do not kill anyone link did not break. The love your neighbor like you love yourself link broke. So the chain broke, and you fall into hell. This is a sin that matters. Partiality. It's so serious of a sin. Jesus had to die to save you from it. It's that big of a deal. If we're going to walk in freedom from it, we must disavow ourselves of this ridiculous myth that it's not that big of a deal. It is. It is. It matters. It means something. Racism, classism, sexism. These aren't just cultural things that you grew up around. These are sins that send you to hell, so you should repent of that before you die. Like, that's a big deal. This partiality, it's a sin so serious and so severe that Jesus had to die to save you from it. It means something. Take it seriously. And then third, I want you to see how do we walk free from the sin of partiality? We must live in light of the gospel. All right, So look at verse 12. We must live in light of the gospel. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. All right? So now, you're going to be judged. Right? there's going to we 're going to come a day where we as christians we're going to be judged we 're going to stand before jesus we 're going to be judged for our works for him like that 's the thing that 's going to happen, but our judgment is different than, than the lost world's judgment all right It says here that we 're going to be judged according to the law of liberty. That word liberty is really cool. The word liberty means to be set free to live like you were made to live right set truly free, really free. Free to be who you were created to be. So the idea is this. You were made to love, worship, and obey God. You were created for that. That's why you were made. However, sin came in, broke that, and made it impossible for you to love, worship, and obey God. And this is where the the gospel comes in. Jesus came to earth to die in your place. To set you free from your sin, forgive you of your sin, and by his grace empower you to now live out how you were made originally to live. In union and relationship with God. And here's the thing. You're now going to be judged by how you what you did with that. Jesus died and rose again to make you holy. Jesus gave you his life so that you would live holy. Do you live holy? Jesus died and gave his life to you so that you would love other people. Do you do that? You're going to be judged. You're going to be judged according to the law of liberty. The gospel has set you free. The gospel has made you right with God. The gospel has done something new in you. The gospel has filled you with the spirit of Christ. The gospel has made it possible for you to finally obey God. The gospel has made all of that true in you. Do you now live that out? That is what we will be judged by. We will be judged by that. Do you do that? And then look at verse 13. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. The level of forgiveness, grace, and mercy you show to others is a direct reflection on whether or not you've experienced the forgiveness, grace, and mercy of God. The consistent teaching of the New Testament is love others like God has loved you. Forgive others like God has forgiven you. Show mercy to others like God has shown mercy to you. The point is as you receive the fullness of God's grace and love and compassion and mercy and forgiveness that flows out of you now to other people. Right? Think, about, think about a steak. Right? So, um, if you just love a steak, don't you love steak? We're almost done. Don't be like, don't talk about food. We're almost done. So when I grill out a steak at home, a couple of things are important. All right? Number one is this. If you grill a steak well done, you need Jesus. All right? That's number one. That's just, we'll just, we'll have counselors up front to pray for you afterwards if you need that. Second is this. marinade is important, correct? Right, how you set that sucker up? It is you, that thing starts well before grill time, right? You you got to prep for that, right? You don't just ruin a good piece of steak by just throwing it on some fire. No, 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 no. You got to prep for them. You marinate that thing. So you put it in the marinade. You're, everybody's got their own special recipe. You put that in there, and the more that meat soaks up in that marinade, the longer it's there, the more it soaks up those juices. After you cook it, when you eat it, it tastes like the marinade. Correct. It tastes like what it's soaked in. Listen to me, brothers and sisters. This is how the gospel impacts and changes your life. In this circumstance, what we're talking about today, and really in everything else. If your heart has really soaked up the grace, mercy, and love of God, when people out there in the world take a bite of your life, they're going to taste the grace, mercy, and love of God. And if they don't, it's because you have not really soaked it up. Does Make sense? As you soak up the grace, mercy, and love of God, that's what you're going to taste like out in the world when everybody takes a bite. But if people bump into you and take a bite out of your life, and it's tough, and, and there's no taste, a little bitter It's because your heart has not soaked up the gospel of jesus christ the grace mercy and love of god this is where it ends this is what it's about you soaking up the grace and love of god so that you can now show that to other people i'm gonna ask our band to come up and as they're doing that i want to read Read one more scripture to you. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. So, the reason that we so often show contempt for the poor and the needy is because we believe, listen to me, the reason that we so often show contempt to those that are poor, that are needy, is really often because in our minds we genuinely think we are where we are because of our own good work and effort. I'm where I am where I am because I worked hard and make the right decisions. You are where you are because you are lazy and made the wrong ones. So it's okay for me to think I'm better. It, it, it's okay for me to think that I did it right. What we don't understand, brothers and sisters, is the sin of partiality is proof that on some level you really do still believe in a works-based salvation. You still think you got where you are because you pulled yourself up by your own bootstraps, and you did it right, and you raised your kids right, and you made the right choices, and you did the good things, and that's why you are where you are and why they are where they are. It shows that you don't actually believe the gospel. And the gospel is this, 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. The gospel is this. You were the outcast. You were the destitute. You were the poor. Your sin completely and totally bankrupted you. You may have looked good on the outside, but the inside, you were completely and totally broke. You had nothing. You are not the rich man in the story. You are the poor man. And Jesus Christ, even though He is God and infinitely wealthy, He freely laid all of that aside, becoming poor on earth, humbling Himself to death, not just death, but death on a cross, at the hands of His own creations. So that as He empties Himself in poverty, He can make you rich in heavenly blessings, far beyond anything you could have ever gotten on your own. The answer for us today, brothers and sisters, is to soak up our hearts in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we will see those around us radically different than we really do now. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads for me. For you here this morning... If you've never trusted by faith in Christ, you can do that today. Look, the truth is this, apart from Christ, you are poor, you are wretched, you are destitute. We are all in the same spot. That's not a, a, a slight on you. That's true of all of humanity. We are all born in sin. We all rebel against God. Scripture tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, and the consequences For that sin is death and hell. That's the the place that we were all in. But Jesus Christ came to earth to die in your place. So that he could fill you up with his glory. With his life. Take away your sin. Make you right with God. Today I want to encourage you. If that's a step that you need to take today. See that Jesus Christ came and he died and he rose again to make you new. Confess your sin to him today. Say, Jesus Christ, save me, forgive me, make me new. Change me. The scriptures say that's exactly what he will do. And as we end our time here this morning singing together, worshiping, I want to encourage everyone, believers in Christ right here, Let's spend our time here at the end focusing on how spiritually poor and broken we really are before God. But how Jesus cares for us. How Jesus comes after us. How Jesus reaches down to care for us as poor and needy. And if we're followers of Christ, surely. We're called to do the exact same thing. So Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for your life. We thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you, Jesus, that even though you were infinitely rich, you emptied yourself out in poverty so that we can accept your heavenly riches and be made new. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. I pray, God, today that every heart in this room soaks up in that reality so that we taste like the gospel of Jesus Christ. Loving those who are different than us. Showing no partiality but caring for all because that's exactly who you are and what you do. Thank you, Jesus. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's stand, guys. Let's, let's worship the Lord together.
0: Destined to die, poured out for mankind. God's only Son, perfect and spotless born. He never sinned or suffered as He
2: for me just real quickly. We're going to let you go here. Wow, we just love, love, love hearing you sing. It's so good. Hey, if you're a guest with us, thank you so much for being here today. We'd love to connect with you. Uh, Two things I'd ask for you to do, all right? Number one, if you are a guest here today, first, my wife and I are going to be up front. We'd love to meet you. If you just want to come up and just say hello, we'd love to connect with you. Second, if you'd be so kind as to grab your cell phone, pull it out, and text the word Um, connect to our number 910-424-1298 just text connect there so we can have a record that you were here and know how to be praying for you that would be fantastic Uh, but for everyone here we've got our big three announcements and here's the thing about our announcements for today i forgot to write them down so i can't wait to see what they are either first ladies of grace retreat that's going to be march 3rd through the 6th ladies i think we have a few spots available for that um, but the due date for turning in your money is super duper close so if you'd like to go and you're not signed up text BEACH to our number to register for that second ladies of grace game nights that was uh, cancelled because of uh, winter storm 2022 rescheduled for February 11th so ladies uh, do not forget that it's going to be a great fun night hanging out is it still bunko and burritos is that the deal? Yeah, so uh, eat some burritos and play some bunko. I've never played bunco, but it uh, sounds fun. I'd go for a burrito. That'd be awesome. So, number three, download the app. <laughs> Southview Baptist Church app, iTunes, Google Play, download that app. Um, that's going to have you find all the other announcements, everything that's going on. Sign up for a group. Give online. You can give through the app or in the giving boxes as you leave. Whatever works best for you. All right, I love you guys so much. I'm so glad to be your pastor. It makes life fun. You are a a joy and a blessing like you wouldn't even know. There's a scripture in Hebrews that says to um, 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 respect and honor your uh, pastors um, in essence so that they enjoy serving you. Like being your pastor doesn't feel like getting hit in the head with a roofing hammer. You totally nailed that, all right? You are amazing. I love you. I love being your pastor. I'm so glad to just know you and be friends with you. God bless you guys. Have a great week and we'll see you next Sunday.